Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. It's a rainy Sunday, but Lord, it's bright and warm and cheery in here because we've got the Holy Spirit here among us. Lord, we thank you that you give us your Holy Spirit when we come to you in faith, acknowledging our sinfulness and our need for forgiveness. And when we ask you for forgiveness and we commit our lives to you, the Holy Spirit makes a home within us and we have God himself walking every step of the way of the rest of our lives right alongside of us. So that no matter what we go through in this life, we always have him there within us, guiding us, helping us make the right decisions, comforting us, giving us his peace, and giving us his joy. We are never without God when we come to you in faith through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit here now, and then we will be with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. We thank you for all these great and many promises you make to us. and We know that you'll make good on every single one of them. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a story that appeared on BBC.com a few years ago that details a strange and kind of funny true story. In 2004, a Canadian woman named Mary Grams was doing some weeding on her family farm in Alberta. While taking care of this menial task, something tragic happened. She lost her wedding ring in the fields as she was weeding. She looked everywhere in those fields for the ring and could not find it and had given up that she had lost it forever. She didn't want to alert or upset her husband, so she bought a cheaper knockoff ring that she would wear for the next 13 years. Mary's husband died back in 2012, and Mary became too old to take care of the farm herself, so she gave it to her son and daughter-in-law. One day, Mary's daughter-in-law was pulling up carrots for her and her husband's dinner, and she pulled up a carrot with Mary's ring <laughs> grown right around it that had been lost for 13 years. Surprisingly, when I read that story, the author didn't even bother to include some kind of lame joke about how many carrots the ring had. <laughs> so I just had to include one. You're welcome for that. Today we're rejoining our series on Jesus' parables, and this morning we're covering a couple of Jesus' more famous parables, both about things that were lost and then became found. They both have the same point, and they both reveal to us the extent of God's love for us. You may be sitting here or watching online later and think that God holds some kind of hatred or grudge or malicious goal for you. And you need to hear that that is most certainly never the case. It's actually very much the opposite. And we'll see all of this as we walk through these parables. But first, like we've done with all the parables of Jesus we've covered, we need to set up the context and the setting, which usually precipitates the giving of the story in the first place, why Jesus even tells a story. So what's that setting? If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to Luke chapter 15. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to Luke chapter 15. Or if books are just too lame for you, you can look it up on your smartphone app, your, your Bible app. 
Uh, you can skim over this while I summarize these first couple of verses. Luke starts out chapter 15 by describing that different kinds of people were drawn to Jesus and wanted to spend time with him. These were the tax collectors who were pretty much despised by everyone in first century Jewish Palestine. Because who, who they were is they were fellow Jewish brothers who chose to be employed by the oppressive Roman Empire and collect taxes for that empire from their fellow brothers and sisters. And I don't think I would like that type of person very much either, do you? And if, the, if that wasn't traitorous enough, these tax collectors would overcharge the taxes they were supposed to collect for the empire so they could skim off the top and furnish a lavish, lavish lifestyle. They didn't work an honest, back-breaking job. They just wielded the power of the Roman Empire to force other people to give them money. You can see how hated these guys were by everyone else around them. Yet they found a peace when they were in Jesus' presence. Something, a lot to be said about that. The other description Luke uses is the term sinners. Now we know that all of us and every single person who has ever lived has been born a sinner. So why does Luke use this term to describe a specific group of people? It's because Luke is setting this up for the Pharisees' response. The Pharisees categorized everyone else who broke the law, didn't care about the religious aspects of Judaism, and therefore were prevented from joining the religious community in the temple as sinners. That's what they were known by, according to the Pharisees. So this could be anyone who knowingly and blatantly continually broke God's laws and didn't care about being excluded from the temple worship. This could be occupational disobedience, like prostitution, or it could be lifestyle disobedience, like people who committed adultery and stole things or lied all the time. But all of these kinds of people felt a peace when they heard Jesus speak. What's very clear here is that when Jesus would spend time with and share meals with who was categorized by the religious leaders as sinners, they weren't the ones influencing Jesus' behavior what was going on. It was the other way around. They were not the ones influencing Jesus' behavior. It was the other way around. And what's to be clearly noted here, too, is that Jesus wasn't just partying with sinners and simply accepting of their lifestyles and behavior. He was purposeful in his time with them. What was important to him was reaching out to them and sharing the truths of God with them when the religious leaders simply wrote them off as lost causes. Oh, they're sinners. I'm not going to even spend my time on them. That's the lesson here. Jesus wasn't accepting of their lifestyles and behavior. Jesus was going where no other religious teacher wanted to go in order to teach people thought of as hopeless the word of God. And so, yes, these two parables and the third one, which we'll talk about next week, are directed at the Pharisees in their opposition to what Jesus is doing and wanting to teach these people about God. But the side audience is these so-called sinners themselves. 
They're overhearing all of this. And we'll see why as we go through these parables. So Jesus, seeing and hearing the Pharisees, who are also hanging around Jesus in this specific situation, grumbling about what he was doing, used that situation as an opportunity to teach them about God's love for those he was eating with that the Pharisees always looked down upon with disgust. So let's pick up in verses 3 through 4 of chapter 15. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pastures and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Jesus opens this first parable with a rhetorical question. According to one biblical scholar, a hundred sheep was an average-sized flock. This is what most rural residents who owned sheep in Jesus' day would be familiar with. That was a usual flock size. In addition, most shepherds would herd their sheep in groups. It wasn't just this shepherd with his hundred sheep over here, and miles away this other shepherd with his hundred sheep over here. They were grouped together and all herd their sheep together. So if a certain shepherd realized that he was missing a sheep, he could easily leave the rest of the flock with the other shepherds he was traveling with. In other words, Jesus' emphasis is not on leaving the other 99 sheep in mortal danger, but on the great lengths the shepherd makes in trying to find that one lost sheep. The other 99 aren't the focus. As we find out from verse 7, they are symbols of those who don't think they need to repent and think they are righteous enough on their own. So knowing that a shepherd could just leave the rest of the flock with other caretakers temporarily prompts Jesus to ask the rhetorical question, what would then stop any of you, if you were shepherds, to go after that lost sheep? That's a pretty powerful in-your-face question. It couldn't be fear of what would happen to the other 99. In fact, and this is what Jesus is getting at, there was no excuse to go after that one sheep. The only thing that would stop any of the religious leaders, if they were shepherds, from going after that one lost sheep would have been pure lack of caring about it. That's the only reason they would have, the only excuse they would have. That's why Jesus tells that first part of the parable by posing it as a rhetorical question. What would stop any of you from going after that lost sheep? Nothing, unless you simply did not care what happened to it. The whole point of that, obviously, was to force the Pharisees to see their hearts when it came to those they labeled as sinners. It was obvious from their grumbling that they didn't care. And Jesus wanted to point blank show them that truth. Truth. He wanted to take their face and shove it in that truth. The fact was they cared more about their own religiosity and what people might think about them than actual human beings that God created in his image. Next, Jesus takes that lack of love and juxtaposes it with the shepherd who did care. Verse 5. When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So not only does that shepherd hike 
and climb and try to cover as much land as physically possible, looking for signs of that sheep and keeping his ear open for that sheep's cry, but he rejoices upon finding it. He doesn't begrudge that sheep. He doesn't yell at it. He's not mad at it. He's so extremely happy that he's found that sheep that he's overwhelmed with rejoicing. Now you would think the story ends there. I could say, let's pray, amen, close your Bibles and go home. You would think the story ends there. The shepherd, it doesn't though. The shepherd returns to the rest of his flock, thanks the other shepherds for watching the other nine, and you would think that was, the, that was it. They move on the rest of their lives. But that's not the ultimate point that Jesus is making here. He's about to get to that. The ultimate point is on the extent of rejoicing the shepherd makes. That's his ultimate point. His point isn't on all the, all the uh, uh, hardship that the shepherd went through to find the sheep. The emphasis is on the, all the rejoicing that shepherd makes once he's found it. That's described in verse 6. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. As another, as another biblical scholar points out, this isn't really something that would have happened in real life. What I mentioned before was more along the lines of what would have happened in real life. Shepherd finds the sheep, he comes back to the rest of his flock, he thanks the other shepherds for watching his other sheep, and they move on with the rest of their lives. That's what would have usually happened in real life. The shepherd returns with the lost sheep and that's it. But in verse 6, Jesus is exaggerating the situation to make his point. That shepherd goes above and beyond and invites all his friends and all his neighbors to share in his joy at finding that lost sheep. Realistically, that seems a little over the top, doesn't it? So what? You're throwing a party because you found one sheep? Realistically, that seems a little over the top over finding one lost sheep, but in illustrating God's joy over a lost person who repents, it's perfect. It's perfect. That's what Jesus reveals next, verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who think they don't need any repentance. When one person who knows that they've broken God's standards and are therefore sinners, which really includes all of us, repents of that sin, whether it was a sinful lifestyle that did not line up with God's word or behaviors and actions that were disobedience to God's standard, when they repent of that and allow Jesus to find them, all of heaven erupts into a giant party. Why? Because of God's love for them. See, their sin didn't make God love them any less. Who they are, what their past was, or what happened to them does not matter. This parable reveals a couple of deep theolog theological truths about our own salvation. Firstly, we are the ones who made ourselves lost. Again, even though we're born sinners, we affirm that every day with the choices we make. In that way, we started out lost and continue to affirm that lostness every day. Each day after that, we put ourselves in the position of walking further and further away from God. Furthermore, if left up to our own, that state of lostness was just always the way we were going to be. 
We were never going to find our way back to the shepherd. We were just going to head further and further down the path of destruction until we met it. In extending this first parable, we were only naturally and logically going to end up more and more lost until we ended up in a place of permanent lostness, a place called hell. The second theological truth is directly connected to the first, and that's this. Our only hope, our only hope was for the shepherd to go looking for us and to find us. That is any one of our only hope. Again, our salvation has nothing to do with us. And there is no amount of good things or prayers or religious tasks that we can do to earn it. It's impossible. We are hopeless. Our only hope is for the shepherd to find us. But guess what? We can't just keep running away from the the shepherd searching for us. We have to stop in our tracks and turn away from the running in the direction we've been running towards our whole lives and face the one who's been searching for us all this time. You know what that's called? That's called repentance. That's what that is. You stop. You stop running in the direction you've been running in your whole life, and you turn around to face the one searching for you. To repent means to stop and turn away from our sin and turn towards Jesus. Furthermore, repentance is a lifelong decision. Really a decision that's made every day. Amen? We make the conscious decision to say, I'm not going down that path of making decisions based on my own sin and my own human wisdom. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Every day making that conscious decision. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Repentance is extremely difficult. Why? Because it goes against everything in our humanity. See, I think too much emphasis can be put on God's love sometimes and too little on the repenting aspect. Too many people that think that God's love also means that he accepts the sinful lifestyle and behaviors they continue in as perfectly fine. It's true that God will always love us, but that love does not place this blanket acceptance on lifestyles that go contrary to God's standards in his word. It's not just about God's love, even though that's where it starts. It's about repentance of a life and things in that life that are not pleasing to God. That's why knowing what's in God's word is so important. We can't repent of things in our lives that are displeasing to God if we don't know what his standards are in his word. If we don't know what's actually in his word. As we learn more and more of God's word and how to properly apply it to our lives, yes, even living in, the tw- in 21st century America, we grow closer to closer to God and bring our lives more and more in line with what we know he knows is best for us, our joy and our blessing. When, when the shepherd, Jesus, finds us in his timing, In our repentance, he scoops us up and brings us to the flock of God, where we're cared for and protected and loved by God as our Father and Jesus as our Good Shepherd. And all of heaven erupts into a giant party over us being found by God's grace. Jesus' love is always chasing after us. Even after we repent and join the fold of God, we may wander away from his way from time to time. And even then, the love of God goes chasing us down. 
Jesus will not rest until he finds us and dusts us off and cleans us up and brings us back into the fold of his protection. So if you feel like God hates you or has forgotten about you or doesn't care about you, that is farthest from the truth. He hasn't stopped coming after you. You may be the one trying to run further and further away from God, but he has not stopped running after you. You know what the thoughts of God hating you or not loving you come from? They're lies that come straight from the pit of hell. That's where those come from. Lies that come straight from the pit of hell. That's, here's why. That's exactly what the enemy of your soul wants you to believe. Because it's completely opposite to what God's word tells us. But those are blatant lies. Jesus loves you so much that he endured the torture and crucifixion of Good Friday just to save you and make it possible for you to become a part of God's family. That's how much he loves you. So since he went through all of that, he certainly is going through everything necessary to show his love to you and rescue you. If you've been fighting against God's love for you for years, stop fighting. Surrender yourself up to God's love because that's all that's waiting for you when you stop fighting. All God wants for the rest of your life is to protect you and to love you and to provide for you and to free you from addictions and to grow you into the person he wants you to be. That's all he wants for you. That's why a giant party erupts in heaven in the first place. Because all the angelic forces already know that truth and are rejoicing in that one more soul has been rescued from the path, that path in an eternity of destruction. One more soul. Jesus drives this rejoicing aspect further home with his second parable in verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? According to one biblical scholar, what's being described here as a silver coin is the Greek drachma, or a form of currency equal to a day's wages. So one of these coins was pretty valuable. It was a whole day's worth of work. Apparently, this woman had 10 of these coins saved up. She had saved up enough each day after that day's basic expenses to save up 10 days worth of work. In a world where there was no paid vacation and you only got paid if you showed up and did the work, this was a lot of money saved up. In other words, this was a very valuable coin. Keep that in mind. This was a very valuable coin. No wonder she scoured the house until she found it. Again, similar to the parable we just talked about, what happens next is probably not something that would happen in real life, but Jesus exaggerated it to make his point. Verse 9, when she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Again, this woman was so overjoyed at finding that coin that she thought may have been lost forever that she threw a party to share her happiness. Jesus uses the same message to end this second parable, verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus' main point in both of these parables is the lost person's value 
Um, but I say keep that in mind. The lost person's value and worth to God. The religious leaders of Jesus' day and the Pharisees had given up on people who didn't care about God at that point. They saw them as less than and looked down upon them. They saw them as lost causes. But that is not the way God sees any one of us. And I think every single person sitting here can say, thank you, God, that you do not see me that way. Amen? He only sees our value and worth. And he only sees what's to be gained with joy when he finds us. And then he can't help but have a heavenly celebration when he's found us. That's how much he loves us, values us, and celebrates our repentance. That's why I said towards the beginning of this message that the side audience for these two parables, along with the third, which we'll talk about next week, was those who the religious leaders had given up on. They needed to be told, they needed to hear that God had never and would never give up on them. He was always running after them. And maybe some of us here or watching online need to hear that or be reminded of that. God has never and would never and will never give up on you. You are his treasure. He wants you to repent, and if you've never repented and stopped running away from God, do that today. Recognize that your sin has called you, caused you to be lost. Re uh, believe that Jesus has been looking for you for a very long time. Stop running and tell God that you repent of your sin. Because of Jesus taking your place on the cross and paying the price for that sin on your behalf, ask God to forgive you of your sin, and he is faithful to do exactly that. Start running towards Jesus and what he wants for you. And he will always be there to protect you and to comfort you and to give you his joy. If you were under the protection of the fold of God and you've wandered away from that path and that protection, realize that that's what's happened. You may have wandered away for years and God's trying to get your attention today. He may have allowed something in your life recently to bring you back here today and to bring you back to him. You've been, you may have wandered away for years, but make today the day you stop aimlessly wandering and surrender yourself up to Jesus' love coming after you. Repent of your wandering because all Jesus wants to do is pick you up, clean you up, and bring you back with celebration into God's fold of protection. That's all that awaits you. There's no him getting mad at you, yelling at you, judging you. That's not what awaits you. It's only his love and him wanting to bring you back into the fold of the protection of God that awaits you. Jesus' love for you is so strong that he went to the cross for you. And he lives again to come chasing after you each and every day. All we have to do is stop running from it. If you've walked with Jesus for a long time, remember how much he loves you. Remember how much he protects you and provides for your every need and gives you the comfort you need in your darkest times and gives you the joy you need in the most difficult of circumstances. Be reminded of all of that and give him thanks for it. And we can't fall into the trap of a pharisaical way of thinking. We can't look at someone who we think is hopeless when it comes to living a life for God and think they're too far gone. You want to know why? A, 
because there's a good chance we were once that person. (laughs) And B, God's love knows no limit. God's love does not see someone as too far gone. God's love knows that he will never give up on them and will always go chasing after them. So too, we must pray for them and share his love and truth with them whenever we can. Whether you have yet to stop running or you were close to God, have wandered and are coming back to him, or you never really left his side, the foundation for all of our hope is all still the same. It's only Jesus. It's only his love that has come chasing after us. It's only him loving us so much that he never stops looking for us until he finds us. And when he does find us, he throws a giant party for one more soul who has stopped running and has been rescued by him. Let's all give him one more reason to throw another heaven-shaking party with the rest of the life that we lead. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these very famous, and there's a reason they're famous, because they're very powerful parables. We thank you for all that they teach us. We thank you for the deep theological truths about our own salvation that they teach us, and we thank you that they teach us about how far you'll go to find us, And how much you celebrate when you find us. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here or watching online later that has never stopped running from you, that they would stop today. They would turn towards you. They would repent of their sin. They would say, Jesus, I know that your death on the cross and your resurrection is my only hope. Please forgive me of my sin. I want to make God my father. And, have, and be under his protection and his love and his joy as I live the rest of my life to please him. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today or watching online later that was under that protection, but has wandered away maybe even for decades, I pray that they would take today to come back. That they would take today to stop their wandering and turn towards you. And you're right there because you've always been searching for them. And Lord, I pray that if We're here today or watching online later. And we've never left your side. We've never left that fold of protection. I pray that we would be so extremely grateful for that love and for that mercy and for that grace that called us into that protection in the first place. All of our only hope is Jesus. That is our only hope. So Lord, I pray that as we partake in communion now, I pray that you direct our hearts and minds to the sacrifice you made so that you could bring us into the fold of love and protection. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.